So let yourself sit in a way that is comfortable for you. There's a way in which coming on retreat, as we do together, here it's the last day of the year, that part of the function of coming to a spiritual retreat is a retrieval of harmony or beauty in our life. 1992, just past, was a particularly political year talk about taxes and no taxes and money for infrastructure. You know all that talk you heard? Yet very little in all those thousands of hours of words and arguments did one hear people speak about happiness or beauty or justice. acquaintance who writes poetry and said that after listening to the political rhetoric on TV, just to keep her sanity, she had a kind of magic spell. She would go in the supermarket into the vegetable aisle and start naming things. Granny Smith, Jonathan, Golden Delicious, Macintosh, Parsley, Parsnips, Yams, Sweet Potato, Cilantro, just to say something that was real. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's true that there are grave problems, toxic waste, environmental degradation, addiction, warfare, and starvation that we all know about, that we feel, we carry in our bodies, too. Yet the source of those is our loss of connection with one another, our loss of connection with our hearts and with the earth, the beauty of the earth around us. You can't do those if you're tuned into beauty. The source of it is our society that struggles so much against the fear of death and greed for long life and possessions. Do you know that we spend 60% of our health care budget in the last nine months of people's lives? Sometimes the greatest political act is to put on Mozart or take a walk in the sunset, in the woods, or by the ocean, or read a poem. As we begin the new year tonight, perhaps you can sense the possibility of the great Dharma bringing for you a retrieval of this harmony or beauty in how you take tea, in how you walk, just in how you are as you walk outside and see the trees or the lake or the puddles as the snow melts. And this beauty that I speak of is not a denial of the sorrows of the world, but rather a grace 
like the compassion of the Buddha that holds and surrounds us and all things. In language, this beauty or harmony that is part of the Dharma, the Tao, is expressed as poetry. You can't get the news from poetry, yet men and women die every day for loss of what is found there. You understand that, yes? Because what nourishes our soul is not in the news. So, in that way, poetry is the music of language. And I want to speak more about it this evening. Buddhism is filled with poetry. Milarepa, the hundred thousand songs of Milarepa, the poems of the beloved, most beloved Zen teacher of Japan, Ryokan, or the Buddha himself, who often spoke in poetic ways. The fragrance of rose bay and, dra- and jasmine drifts far with the winds. But the fragrance of virtue and deeds of a good heart rise even unto the gods. Or when the Buddha was enlightened, sitting under the Bodhi tree, it said that the first thing he spoke was a poem. He said, O house builder, thou art seen at last. The ridge pole is shattered, the rafters are broken. No longer shall you build this house of sorrow. Freed am I at last. Poetry is a kind of condensing of language to use the images that touch that place of beauty through words. Here's Hanshan, great old Chinese master that John mentioned last night. Clouds and mountains all tangled up to the blue sky, a rough road and deep woods without any travelers. Far away, the lone moon, a bright glistening white. Nearby, a flock of birds sobbing like children. One old man sitting alone, the dog barks. (laughs) perched in these far green mountains a small shack letting my hair grow white pleased with the years gone by this life is like water flowing east to the ocean just a few lines and you get this whole life of this person letting my hair grow white long this life of ease Thich Nhat Hanh says, in probably the most famous of all of his now very popular books and teachings, in all of that, he says, if you can see with the eyes of a poet, which is to say, to see deeply into something, when you look at even one piece of paper, you see the interdependence of all things, that in this paper, is the tree that it is composed of. And the clouds and the rain that watered that tree, and the sunlight that nourished the leaves, and the logger who cut the tree down, 
and the logger's wife who made his lunch, and the logger's father and mother, and all fathers and mothers who preceded them back to the first. And every machine that was ever created that went up to his chainsaw before that, saws and metal and and metallurgy all the way back through the Middle Ages and back to the Bronze Ages. All of that, cloud, sunlight, metal, machines, human beings from the first, all in this piece of paper. Without one, there couldn't be the other. If you see with the eyes of a poet. So in poetry or in seeking harmony or beauty in our practice, we see what's in front of us in a new way. And we can get awakened in just a moment or just a line. Here's a couple of first lines from Emily Dickinson who lived down the road. Because I did not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Just that line says a lot, doesn't it? Hmm? Or another poem, she begins. I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? That was after going to a Dharma talk at IMS. (laughs) There's a lot in just a few words. As we begin to sit, we may have brought with us ideas of how this retreat should be. Getting quiet, or memories of what happened on the last retreat and how we're going to get back to that place. But we discover as we sit, like Thich Nhat Hanh's paper, that we too contain all things. We can't control or plan them. What we find is what Emily Dickinson called the mob within the heart. You've probably noticed that. So you sit and there's sleepiness and exhaustion and fear and hopes and great grief that comes and restlessness, all the hindrances John talked about last night. The unfinished business of your life that now when you become quiet, it's waited for you and it arises. And we get to hear all the voices And part of what we do is sit here and name them, say, oh, sad, sad, happy, happy, grief, grief, fear, fear, acknowledging each voice as it comes. Here's Carl Sandburg's version of this. This poem is called Wilderness. There's a wolf in me, fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat in the hot lapping of blood. I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me and the wilderness will not let it go. Have you found that in your sitting? There's a fox in me, a silver gray fox. I sniff and guess and pick things out of the wind and the air and nose in the dark night. There's a hog in me, snout and belly, machinery for eating and grunting, machinery for satisfied sleeping in the sun. I got this from the wilderness too, and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fish in me. I know I came from salt blue waters. I scurried with shoals of herring, blue water spouts with porpoises before Noah. There is a baboon in me, 
clambering clawed, dog-faced, yapping a gaulut's hunger, hairy under the armpits, their hawk-eyed, hankering men and blonde, blue-eyed women snarling the baboon because the wilderness says so. There's an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among rocking mountains of my dreams and fights among the Sierra crags. And I got the eagle and the mockingbird from the wilderness. Oh, I got a zoo. I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart. And I got something else. It is a man heart, a woman child heart. It is a father and mother and lover came from God knows where. It's going to God knows where. For I am the keeper of the zoo. I say yes and no. I sing and kill and I am a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let me go. I used to think of him as a sort of staid fellow, Carl Sandburg. <laughs> it's like that, though, isn't it, when you sit and you really listen? Freud put it this way. He said, wherever I've gone, A poet has been there before me. So the question comes in our practice, then, how do we relate to the zoo? Meditation is an invitation to presence, to aliveness, to an awake, mindful being in the face of it all, to acknowledge and name. There's the wolf and the baboon and the angel and the devil and all the other creatures that are part of what we are. Sometimes we get confused and think that meditation is about deadness. Here's a poem from Thomas Carlyle. It is best, it is good to use best china, the most genuine goblets, the oldest lace tablecloth. There's a risk, of course, every time we use anything or anyone shares an intimate moment or a fragile cup of revelation. But not to touch, not to handle the artifacts of being human is the quiet crash, the deadly catastrophe where nothing is enjoyed or broken or spilled or spoken or stained, or mended, where nothing is ever lived, loved, laughed over, wept over, where nothing is ever lost or found. So it's important somehow to recognize in the spiritual practice that we're doing, it's not a deadening of ourselves or a pushing away of life, but an opening in the center of it to find a freedom. Rumi expresses the spiritual journey in poetry. Rumi's like the Mozart of poetry. 10,000 verses, volumes. He just, he would go to the market or in the bath and he had his sidekick along with him and he would just be spouting poetry and this guy would be writing it down as fast as he could. I don't think Rumi thought about it. He just heard somebody else give it to him. and kind of came out of him. Rumi's expression of the spiritual journey, he speaks of it in three phases. 
You know, the Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. In these three phases, he uses the image of the camel, the lion, and the child. And you can hear how these images go, they bypass our thinking a little, they go to some deeper place in our being. The image of the camel symbolizes necessary devotion, repetition, service, if you've ever been in the countries where they use camels. A willingness to sit, to kneel, camels kneel when you climb up on them, to pray, to walk, to breathe in and breathe out, breathing in, breathing out, rising, falling, to note over and over, just to do it. The camel is the beast of burden. It is the practice, as Chogyam Trumpa described it, meditation is manual labor. It's just that stage of being willing to walk and to put your foot up and put it down on the earth again, to feel the breath come in and go out, to kneel, to bow, to surrender, to honor. Here's a poem about sitting. So Horton kept sitting there day after day, (laughs) and soon it was autumn, the leaves blew away, and then came the winter, the snow and the sleet, and icicles hung from his trunk and his feet, but Horton kept sitting and said with a sneeze, I'll stay on this egg and I won't let it freeze. I meant what I said and I said what I meant, and elephants faithful. 100%. So that's really the capacity that Rumi talks about, finding in ourself this capacity to give ourselves to something over and over and over in the face of all the things that arise, to bow, to honor, to do it again and again. Here's Rumi talking about the camel. He says, you've lost your camel, my friend, and everybody's giving you advice. You don't know where your camel is, but you do know even these casual directions are wrong. Even someone who hasn't lost a camel, who's never even owned a camel, gets in on the excitement. Yes, I've lost my camel too, a big reward for whoever finds it. He says this in order to be part owner of your camel when you find it. Kind of imitation. When the good information comes, though, you can smell it right away, can't you? But suddenly he goes his own way and he sees his own camel browsing there, the one he didn't know he'd lost. Only then does he become a seeker. He turns aside and goes toward the camel himself. Someone asked, why have you left my search? And he said, I was like a thief. I crept and entered a house and it was my own home. Now I know the camel is here. There's not many camels but one. I saw it myself. So this first stage in the spiritual journey of the camel, this part of practice, is humbling. And it asks of us a deep healing by sitting and walking and being with all that we've run from for so long in our life. I often have spoken of practice of sitting as a process of healing, of healing the body, by letting letting ourselves feel the wounds and tension in places within us that we've avoided or pushed aside, and touching that with compassion and tenderness in our attention. 
allowing that to heal. And even more deeply, perhaps, the wounds of the soul or the spirit, inner conflicts that we have, grief that we've all known. Everyone has their sorrows, every single being. And some of them are really great. Again, Emily Dickinson begins a poem. She says, there is a pain so utter it swallows substance up and covers it with trance as if in a dream. So this deep healing is letting ourselves sit where we had been in trance, just one sitting at a time, a day at a time, like the camel to bow or to take on a burden for carrying and allow ourselves to touch with kindness the grief, the work, the difficulties, the rage, to accept the things that are there that show themselves within us, and to find, to make our peace with each one by touching it with respect. Edo Roshi, Zen master, said, people often ask, how the Buddhists answer the question, does God exist? The other day I was walking along the river near the temple and the wind was blowing. Suddenly I thought to myself, oh, the air, it really does exist. Of course we know that the air is there, but unless the wind blows against our face, we're not aware of it, we forget about it. But here in the wind I was suddenly aware, yes, there's air. And the sun, too. I was suddenly aware of the sun shining through the bare trees, its warmth, its brightness, and all this completely free, completely gratuitous, simply there for us to enjoy. And without knowing it, quite spontaneously, my two hands came together, and I realized I was making a bow. And it occurred to me that this is all that matters that we can bow, take a deep bow, just this. So the healing work of the camel is really the work of compassion and devotion, that willingness to stay with what arises over and over with a kindness. In the poem, Wild Geese, What is her name? I forget the name. Yes. Um, what? One more? Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver writes, You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. What a line. You do not have to be good. You don't have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. Rather, it's the healing of devotion and presence and willingness to be here 
That's what we do in the days of the retreat over and over. And then this leads us to the stage that Rumi calls the stage of the lion. After that devotion and that presence and that learning that capacity to be here, there comes with the lion the roar of authority. I am here in the midst of it all. The Buddha called his teaching the lion's roar. This is the truth of all times. And people came and challenged him and said, you're not even ascetic anymore. He said, whatever great ascetic practice has been done under the sun in India, I have done it to the limit. And that is not the way. I've done it all. Instead, I've discovered the truth in the midst of all things. And I offer that to you as an invitation to awaken. The lion's roar. Did you ever hear a lion roar in traveling or even in the zoo? You you can go to a zoo. I remember being in a zoo, you know, and there was this old lion in the not very big cage in the old kind of zoos. You see the lion and the other cats. It's kind of depressing in a certain way. Go around and all of a sudden this lion, (sighs) huge roar comes from some other part of the zoo. It's that lion. And even though that lion might have been there for 20 years, everything in the zoos got quiet. Every single thing. And it was like that roar was saying, I do not belong in a zoo. After 20 years, that lion still knew it and would say it. So for the lion then, the awakening of the lion is not the practice of duty or devotion but discovering after a time within us that place that speaks the truth, that rests in the center of the earth, that serves and honors the Dharma with every action, that bestows blessings on the world from a place that has found our center. This is the Buddha speaking in a Chinese sutra. He says, I consider the position of kings and rulers as that of dust motes. I see the treasures of gold and gem as broken stones lying on the ground. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see the myriad worlds of the universe as small nuts and the great Indian Ocean as a drop of oil at my foot. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusions of magicians. I look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of a dragon and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. All of that, like a dream, whatever it is. And I rest here in my Buddha nature, in the middle of it all. So in this aspect or dimension of practice, one begins to find one's Buddha nature, one's royalty. I spoke about a sense of dignity within each of us. Discovering that we belong here on this earth, that you're not a mistake, which a lot of us think deeply in there somehow, that somehow we're we're not supposed to be here or be who we are, that we are supposed to be here, that we have a right to be here on this earth. It's a poem I want to read to you. 
the children like a lot, and I'll tell you why afterward. See if you can guess. It's called A Story That Could Be True. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world your father is lost and needs you, but you are far away. He can never find how true you are, how ready. Later, when the great winds come and the robberies of the rain, you may stand in the corner shivering. The people who go by, you wonder at their calm. They miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind. Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give, no matter how dark and cold the world around you is, Maybe I'm a king. Maybe I'm a queen. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. The reason children like this is because they all know this story. When you tell this kind of story to them, or in many fairy tales it has a different version, that someday there might be a knock on the door. And they go and they open the door, and there's someone who bows to them and say, we would like you to come with us. And they say, why? And they say, well, actually, these are not your real parents. <laughs> you were placed here for a while, but in fact, there's a coach out there, a beautiful golden coach, you know, and we've come to take you back to your true home, to the palace. And the children know that that's so because that true home is that place of dignity of the prince or princess, of the king or the queen. And that is the awakening of our own true nature, that we know that's who we are somewhere deep in there. For the sake and the delight of the feminine in the lion's roar, I read you another poem. <clears throat> I was born in the Congo. I walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every 100 years falls into the center, giving divine perfect light. I am bad. I sat on the throne drinking nectar with Allah. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to control my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert. With a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes, I crossed it in two hours. I'm a gazelle so swift you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Hannibal an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength flows on. My son Noah built an ark. I stood proudly at the helm on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus. Men intone my loving name. All praises, all praises. I am the one who would save. I sowed diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, 
I caught a cold and blew my nose giving oil to the Arab world. I am so hip, even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and had to round off the earth as I went. The hair from my head thinned and gold was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal, I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the endless sky. That's the lion's roar, the queen. So first, there's the camel, there's devotion, there's willingness to be present, surrender, to honor what arises. And then there's the awakening of the lion. Yes, I am here. I can sit in the midst of all this. I am connected with this all. And then the third stage that Rumi speaks of is the child of the spirit, the child. Again, that line from Angelus Salasis, if in your heart you make a manger for his birth, then God will once again become a child on this earth. And the quality of the child that arises in our spiritual practice is that of wonder, of a newness of spirit. As Suzuki Roshi said in his most famous line, the goal of meditation is always to keep a beginner's mind. What an amazing way to express all that we're doing. The goal of meditation is just to keep that sense of wonder in inquiry. And this is to reclaim what is beautiful and what is amazing about ourselves and about life. To see that in front of us. The amazement that night follows day. I mean, it doesn't have to be that way. That our earth turns like that and we have day and night. Fantastic! Sunset, sunrise, darkness and light. We could have been on a planet that wasn't that way and just in that kind of belt near where the twilight part was. We have night and day, amazing. Or sleep. Look at sleep, it's weird. Most of the creatures on this planet lie down, you know, their eyes close and they go unconscious for a while and then they wake up again. It's really weird. And not only that, when they do that, then they imagine they're on some other planet, right? <laughs> really strange. Sleep. We take it all for granted. Or the human eye, look at it. I mean, it's very, there's this orb in here, right? It's really bizarre. And out of that, we see this thing that we call the earth and life around us. Where did that come from? We came from an egg and a sperm, a little seed. How did that happen? Really, how that happens, nobody can explain. Or eating, right? I've talked about this. We have a hole at one end of the tube into which we stuff dead plants and animals, right? <laughs> That's it. And mush them up with these bones, kind of like that. And then they get burned slowly, and that way we can ambulate the tube around. I mean, this is incarnation. It's very strange. I hang out a lot with preschoolers because of my daughter and, and her younger friends and their 
the, the main jokes in preschool are pee-pee and poo-poo jokes, you know, because they're really tuned into the mystery still. I took some kids to the circus, two, two kids that were the son and daughter of a woman I lived with some years ago, who I, I loved very much, and they were, I think they were three and five. And, you know, the acrobats were okay, and the tigers were more interesting in the band and stuff. But then the elephants came out. The elephants were very interesting watching the elephants. And we got good tickets. We went early and had seats right in like the front row. And then finally this one elephant, it stopped right in front of us. (laughs) And first it peed. And it was like this lake, this huge. And then it pooed. This big plop, plop. And their mouth just went. It was great. I mean, it was the moment of the circus. The child of the spirit. Here's Whitman. He says, where are you? I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. And the running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven. The cow crunching grass with depressed head surpasses any work of art. And a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. A mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Who could make a mouse? Where does it come from? So it's that spirit. When Caroline, my daughter, was little, I used to take her out and carry her when she was like a year old and introduce her to trees or go out at night and point up and say, that's a star. She'd kind of look around. It was a wonderful face to be with really little ones who still have that vision. If you read the poetry of Ryokan, he also still has it. He says... The children run to greet me this spring. How they have grown. Hand in hand, the children and I pick spring vegetables. What could be more wonderful on this earth? In my bowl, the children place violets and dandelions. They are mixed together with the Buddhas of all three worlds. Day after day, an old monk begging. Today's begging finished at the crossroads. I wander by the side of Hachiman Shrine, talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) Such a spirit. To awaken the child of the spirit is to discover a great sense of space and a playfulness of the heart and appreciation for beauty in the midst of everything. The Ojibwe Indians say, Sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. But even in our sorrows, which are very genuine, there's some much greater thing that's happening. This is Thomas Merton. He says, Life is this simple. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent 
and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a fable or a nice story. It is true. So to awaken this aspect of spiritual practice is to bring that appreciation and care for beauty, breathing in and breathing out. Care for it in every dimension, in the great ways of watching the sunset, the the kind of dramas of the world that unfold, and in the very littlest ways of our practice of taking a step or opening the door or the leaves on the ground as you walk outside. Because you find that it's not somewhere far away, it's here in any moment the divine shines through. As William Blake said, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the flatterer, and the scoundrel. It's in the smallest little things that that sense of wonder can be awakened or opened read you another poem by David Budbill, wonderful poet. Hanshan, that great, crazy, wonderful Chinese poet of a thousand years ago, said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going round, never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day, climbing up the steep sides, sliding back over and over again, up and back down, Haven't you noticed in your meditation? Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. As you sit, there will arise the sad poems of loss and the memory of Yugoslavia or the logging of the old growth forest or the ozone and happy poems, poems of forgetfulness and jealousy and poems of creativity and stories of new children being born and new wonders arising, all those things are there. And there'll be the time for devotion and just doing it again and again, breathing in and out, walking, feeling things arise, naming each one, sad, sad, happy, happy, grief, letting yourself weep, joy when it comes, then just back to rising and falling and in and out, finding that place. The lions roar in the center of it all. I am here, just as I am on this earth, and the wonder of a child. And as you sit and let each of these dimensions of your life open for you, what happens is that the sense of your identity, of who you are, begins to change and shift. You come in and you think you're this way or you're that way, and it starts to break down and dissolve, and you have the mob within the heart within you, and all the animals of Sandberg, and all the mysteries start to come in and out of every pore. And if you're present, really present, in the end, in any moment, not any special moment, 
But in any moment, you begin to sense that you're not who you thought you were. And so I read you the last poem. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.